pilgrimage three times a year when they go up to the house of the Lord with their tithes and offerings. I don't know if I brought that out, but that's going to be brought to light in this song. That when they were traveling in these three different times of the year, these were all times that they would be bringing the offering to the to the Lord's house, the ten percent of the first fruits from their harvest they would be bringing on each of these three occasions to the Lord. And so they wouldn't just be walking as they're uh, climbing up the mountain towards the temple, but they would have been pulling wagons and had mules pulling wagons and ox pulling wagons loaded down with 10% of the harvest that God had blessed them with that year. So they're carrying the blessing of God as they go up towards Mountain of Zion toward the Lord's house. Let's look at it. Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. And they said among the nations or among the heathen, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Bring back our cap captivity, O Lord as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Alright, let's start with the first verse. God sets the captive free. We see when the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, it's a reference to them having been held captive and then being set free to come home to rebuild their houses and rebuild the Lord's house and begin to worship again. You understand, don't you, that when they were in captivity, they were usually taken away somewhere. There's a lot of debate about which captivity this was, and I'm not even going to get into that. It doesn't matter. It was a captivity, and they're taken away somewhere, far away from where they we're supposed to be in Jerusalem. Their, their city is burned, usually, torn down. The house of God was torn down, usually. And so there is no worship when you're in captivity. But this song starts out stating when the Lord, a remembrance of when the Lord brings you back from captivity. God sets captives free. Aren't you glad of that? Aren't you glad that when you falter and when you fall and when you stray and when you grow weary in the faith and you become captive to something, our God is a God who sets captives free. He is a God who delivers us from bondage. Uh, the first of these journeys would have been the journey up to the mountain for what's called Passover, which goes back to Egypt holding Israel captive and setting them free through all those series of miracles and the great uh, greatest example in the Old Testament of being set free from captivity when Israel was set free from Egyptian slavery uh, to come and serve the Lord on the mountain of Zion. And so if you just have that concept of God in your own life, you know this about our God. You know this about the God whom you serve. His desire, His work, his character is to set captives free. Whatever you're captive to, whatever holds you and binds you in sin, God's desire and God's work and God's nature is to set you free from that. 
The second thing we see in verse 1, he says, we were like those who dreamed. When God set the captive free, it was so amazing what he did. It was like, like we were dreaming. It didn't even seem real. It seemed like we were so held in captivity that there was no hope. When you're held captive in bondage to something and you're a slave to something, it seems like there's no hope. You cannot get free. You've tried many times to set yourself free to no avail. You cannot do this on your own. And then when God intervenes miraculously, setting you free, it doesn't even seem real. It seems like a dream. You ever heard somebody say this? You say, how you doing? And they say, living the dream. You ever heard somebody say that? And that's the dream. This is the dream life, to be set free from captivity and to be able to serve the Lord. Look at what it says in verse 2. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Our mouth was filled with laughter. We are so living this dream that we are laughing and we are singing. This word was singing. I want to interpret a little bit more for you and show you where else it's used in this song. The word here, filled with singing, is used three times in this song. It's what we would call an onomatopoeia word, if I said that right. It is a word that describes a sound. The, the sound being described here is a ringing cry or a proclamation of joy. The Revised Standard Version, I like their translation, it, it translates it a shout of joy. But it's the same word is used in three different places in my version. I use the New King James. It's it grieves me a little bit that it's translated differently each, three, each of the three times it's used. So let me let you mark these in your Bible. In verse 2 where my version says, Our tongue was filled with singing. That's this shout of joy. And then again in verse 5, if you look down there, it says, They shall reap in joy. That's again this shout of joy. And then down in verse 6 where it says with rejoicing shall doubtless come again with rejoicing that's this shout of joy so three times in this song I believe the congregation singing would have made some sort of shout they would have made some sort of outcry that they all would have known and so if you ask me is it alright to shout in church I'm going to say yes right here in the song three different times they did it so you just be singing along and you'd shout. Now I thought about how to interpret this shout for you because I wanted to give you an interpretation of it. And I thought about just calling it, woo, like that. And it's a shout like that. But then uh, I realized when I looked up the Hebrew of the word, it is a two-syllable word. It is renow is the word. And so it, it needs to be a shout that's two-syllable. And I thought, well, that the only two-syllable shout I know is yee-haw. <laughs> There's the two-syllable shout for the Lord. Uh, but I remember when we were, when we had little children, and our children were probably just learning to read, like three, four, five, and six. Uh, I had a habit back then of saying, Whew. I'd say that a lot. Whew. And so they were just learning how to read and learning how to spell. And so my kids, without our teaching them, tried to spell, Whew. and they spelled it H-I-L-F, Hilf. And so our children begin to say that. Instead of going, phew, daddy, they would go, hilf. Because <laughs> they were trying to be grammatically correct. They thought I was wrong, I guess. And they had worked out the spelling of that, that, that kind of word to describe the shout. And so it became a, a common saying in our home when they were little. We would all start to say, hilf, hilf, you know. And so 
I want you to have in your mind some kind of woo, I'm not gonna do the you ha because that's just we're country, but we're not we don't gotta go that way in church. And so uh, it is some sort of a song where three times in the song, think about this, you're declaring God and who he is, and three times in the song the the congregation or the, the pilgrims climbing the wall would have made some kind of shout. Think about that. Wouldn't that be exciting? Some kind of woo! There we go. Let's just try it once, okay? I'm not going to ask you to do it three times. But here we go. We're going to do, you can shout whatever you want to, but woo or something like that. You ready? One, two, three. Woo! There you go. So we need a song like that, Brad. A song <laughs> with three shouts in it that we can bring out to the Lord. It's like a dream. Then look what he says in verse 2. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. Then said they among the nations, or some translations say among the heathen, the Lord has done great things for them. So I want to give you this picture of the children of Israel climbing up the mountain. They have their wagon loads of their tithes and offerings. Their wagons are filled with grain. They're leading little bull calves, 10% of their bull calves that were born, and their goats that were born, and their sheep were born. And so they're winding this, this road up the mountain, and as they're going up the mountain, there's, they're going by the homes or the places where heathen live, or people from other nations are there on the side of the road. And these people from other nations are watching them climb that mountain. And these people begin to say, wow. Look at all that. Look at what great things the Lord has done for them. Now, if you have been through our new members class, you know this. We go over this in that class. That that's one of the reasons we we changed to putting the baskets up front like this for our tithes and offerings instead of guilting you by passing it down the pew and back and forth like most churches today do. Give you a funny story real quick on my wife. She was at church recently down there in Florida, and we've done it this way so long. She's sitting there on the end of the road, and the guy tries to hand her the chicken bucket or whatever you know to pass down the aisle. And she looks at it and she goes, "No, thank you." <laughs> so Levi had to reach across her and take the bucket and pass it down the aisle. She didn't even, she's the pastor's wife, and she don't even know what to do. Who's going to do with this bucket? But, uh, that's one of the reasons we set them up here, because if you can imagine the children of Israel going up to the mountain, pulling their wagon loads of 10% of what God gave them, it was very evident how much they're bringing to the Lord's house. Can you see that? It was very evident how much their tithe was, and it was even evident, like if Justin had two wagons, and I only had one wagon, it was evident, I could say to Justin, wow, the Lord is really being good to you, and it was a... It was a time of praise and a time of glory in God because however many wagons you had of grain or however many was in your herd that you're bringing to the temple, it was a testimony of look how God blessed our family this year. Look what God's done. And there was no shame about it, no secrecy about it. You couldn't hide it, you know. And you're bringing all these tithes and offerings up to the Lord's house. And that's what's happening here. And it's happening to the degree that even lost people, even people who don't worship their God, are noticing it and they're saying, wow, look how great things the Lord has done for these people. And so it's almost like when the, when the heathens say this, verse 3, then the, then the Jews or the Hebrews begin to, to recognize it too. It's almost like they didn't even recognize it until the heathen recognized it. And then verse 3, then, the, then they say, the Lord has done great things for us, 
and we are glad. So then the people of God look at their own wagons and they notice what great things God has done and they're glad. They're happy over the blessing of God on their lives. Let me say something to you about that real quick. If you don't recognize the blessing of God, you'll not rejoice in the blessing of God. Why is it easier for us to notice God's blessing on someone else than it is for us to notice God's blessing on ourselves? Men, I want to call upon the men today. Men, it is your responsibility in your homes to point out to your family the blessings of God. Lest your family become a pity party home. Woe is me. Where is God? What has God done? It is the men's responsibility to constantly regularly be naming and listing and pointing out the things of God, the things you wouldn't have, wouldn't be able to do, wouldn't be able to enjoy if the Lord had not blessed you and give God the credit for what God has done for your family. Men, that responsibility lies on you. And so then the people begin to say, look what the Lord has done. Look at these great things the Lord has done for us. And they were glad. Verse 4. It changes a little bit here, the song. It, it goes into a little different uh, style here, and it says, Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Uh, bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the king streams in the south. Now, the word captivity here, if you want to mark in your Bibles, I try to point this out when it occurs. The word captivity here is used three times in the original language. And so it is repeated three times, bring back captivity, captivity is literally what it be translated from. So these, these, he's saying, bring us back in a point of restoration is what he's saying. In order to better understand the interpretation of verse 4, you need to go to the last phrase of verse 4 that says, as the streams in the south. So he's telling us, asking the Lord to bring back three times from our captivity, Bring back our captivity. Bring back our captivity. Restore us, Lord. But in, to interpret it, you need to look at as the streams in the south. So as the streams in the south is a reference to what's called the Negev area. South of Israel. I've never been there. Uh, but I've uh, read about people who have. And one of the things they say about this southern region is it's very dry down there in the south. It's be below the mouth of Zion. And there, there are these deep riverbeds that, that lay empty. You can imagine these deep gullies everywhere that lay empty. In the Hebrew, they call them wadis. And so there's these deep ravines and canyons and riverbeds that are they're dry. They're empty. And when it would rain, it would rain down there not very frequently, but when it did, it would be torrential rains that would come really hard and really fast. And so when this hard, fast rain would fall all of a sudden into that area, that region, you can imagine it would begin to cut these ravines and cut these, these beds, these rivers in that dry, hard soil. I'll give you a little example of this. When we first bought our farm years ago, we moved into that little house up there at the road, and that very night I began to dig the basement for our house that we've been now that we were going to build. So I went about there like, I think it took me about four nights. I, as soon as the kids would go to bed, I'd go back there and start digging with a backhoe. And I, I dug the, the, the basement, dug it out about eight, eight, nine feet deep with a basement. And the third 
today when I finish that basin, I'm sitting in the middle of that hole and I feel like on the backhoe and I'm just praying and I'm praising God and I'm thanking God. And about that time, it begins to rain and it begins to pour the rain. And what I notice as I sit there praising God in the rain is all the rain from our whole farm was draining right into my basement. <laughs> all the water was coming right there. So where our house is today, that's not where I dug that basement. I, that was, I can show you if you're over to my house, there's still a little bit of a hole there where I dug the first basement. I thought, I come home and she goes, are you done? I said, yeah, but I got to start over. <laughs> I'm going to have to build it on high ground, not on low ground where everything is draining for. But if you can picture these beans, they're dry, they're hard, they're empty, they're deep, but then the rain comes and they quickly fill up with water again. And, and what he's saying here in verse 4 is he's saying the same way these old, hard, dry ravines fill again with the rainwaters, that same way, Lord, will you restore us to our previous condition where we're thriving and flowing with water. Basically, do this same thing to us, O Lord, that happens to these streams in the south every time it rains. Let me give you some scripture about the water in the Bible that is a reference to the Spirit of God. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3, he says, For I will pour out on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. In John chapter 4, verse 14, when he's talking to the woman in the well, he says, But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. In John chapter 7, verses 37 and 39, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So there is a reference in the Scriptures to this water being the Spirit of God that fills us like that deep, empty canyon, that deep, empty ravine, and it causes us to be flowing with rivers of living water out of our soul by the power of the Spirit of God who, who lives within us. So basically they're crying, Oh Lord, restore us from our captivity. Cause that which we thought we had lost. Let me just give you a Christian perspective of this. As a Christian, you, you've been saved, you've been set free from captivity, and you start to move back into captivity. You start to give yourself back over to some sort of sin. As God delivers you from that sin, the proof that God has delivered you from that sin is the restoration of the Spirit. It is when God all of a sudden brings back to you what you thought you had lost. The testimony in your life as a Christian that you're still under grace, the grace of Jesus, is the renewal of that Spirit. He causes that water to flow in you again. And so He returns you to the previous grace, the previous joy, the previous relationship that you had with the Lord, and His power thrives in you, His power to praise Him and rejoice in Him, and your mouth is filled with laughter and your tongue is filled with singing. So this, this renewal of the Spirit, you're being flooded with the waters of the Spirit, if you will, 
is proof to you that God has set you free. Verse 5. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. So there's a mention here that as a Christian you're going to have both tears and joy. You need to know that. Don't get caught off guard by that. There are going to be times of sorrow and there are going to be times of rejoicing. Verse 6, He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing in his sheep. Let's break that down a little bit better. He who goes forth weeping. The word goes forth here is again a, 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 a word or a verb in the Hebrew that is repeated three times. This word is repeated walking. I think I put it in your notes. He who goes walking, walking, weeping. It's, it's literally the words he goes is to go walking. And then there's the word walking and then the word walking again. And so three times it is saying go walking, go walking, go walking, weeping. And so the point is here that he who keeps going while he's weeping. You ever been weeping? I'm sure you have. Had some great tragedy, tragedy some great sorrow. The point of the song is here that even though you're weeping, you keep walking and you keep walking and you keep walking. So you're walking and weeping and walking and weeping and walking and weeping. Did you get that? It's not you're weeping and you sit down over there in the corner all by yourself. That's not it. It's your weeping and you continue to go forth as a believer, as a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the next phrase. It says, bearing seed for sowing. The word sowing means to leave a trail. It's kind of like if, you, if you're going to sow seeds, you would, you would leave a trail. You'd draw out a line and plant a, a row in the garden and you'd plant those seeds in a long row. It's a trail. There's a song about the Cherokee Indians. I'm uh, from that part of North Carolina where the Cherokee Indians are. And, and there's even a show up there you can go and see, and it's called the Trail of Tears. When those Indians were pushed out of their land, and everywhere they walked, they were leaving a trail of tears. So the picture here is that you're sowing your tears. You're going forward weeping, and you're sowing your tears. Your tears are leaving this trail, this line. In on verse 6, they shall doubtless come again with rejoicing. That is that word for shout. The shout, that's the woo. They will come again with the shout, bringing sheaves with him. The sheaves would be the, the bunches of grain that are tied together and bound up together that you would bring back to the house of God. You would get them off your wagon when you get to the temple, and you would bring them into the house of God, and the men would wave those sheaves of grain before the Lord. Let's move into application. Just have three points of application. We're going to talk about living the dream. Don't waste your sorrows and bring in the sheep. Number one, live the dream. When captivity happened to them, we've already discussed this a little bit, but they would leave their homes. All their goods and earthly belongings would have been destroyed. And they would make you a slave. When men make you a slave, here's what happens. You work for them all day. And you get nothing. That's what a slave is. You work for them all day and basically you don't get paid. 
All you do is for them. And so if you're planting a crop and you get a harvest off the crop, it's their harvest, not yours. If you're tending the animals and there's some new animals born, those new animals don't belong to you. They belong to your master. You're a slave, so you're working for them all day and nothing belongs to you. You say, what's the big deal about that? Because you're not getting the reward for your labors. You have nothing to offer to God to declare to God everything I have came from you. Because in that sense, in, in serving a master, everything you have comes from your master. If your children want to eat that night, it's because your slave owner, your master, gives you a little bit of food to put on your children's table. And so it sort of takes God, God out of picture now. Do you see that? They're not being able to recognize that what we're eating here is a gift from God. They're getting it from the master's hand. And so all of this has been destroyed and they're, they're in this bondage. They're in this captivity. But the most important thing that's lost is they have destroyed your place of worship. They would usually tear down the temple or burn it to the ground and they would move you far away from it. So you're not only far away from the house of God, you can't get to the house of God and if you could get there, there is no temple left there to go to. But what about restoration? When you're set free from captivity, then you can return home where you belong. Then you can get paid for your work. Think about that. You get paid for your work. And so now you're being able to get the reward of your work and say, look at what God has done for us. Look at what God has given us. Look how God has blessed us. You can then also return to the house of God, which means then you can also bring in your sheaves or bring in the blessings of God and lay them at the feet of Jesus and declare, everything I have came from you. You could worship again. And so it says in verse 1 and 2, you could, you could live the dream. Living the dream is this. You move from captivity to your mouth being filled with laughter and a woo shout of joy. You move from, verse 4, from being dry and empty to flowing and thriving in the Spirit of God. You move from being far away from God where you feel like there's no, no touch of the Spirit, no touch of the Lord. You feel like God doesn't see you. God doesn't know what's going on. And when you're set free from captivity, you move into the place where the Spirit is so real. It feels like He's touching you instantly. When the Spirit is so real, it is evident that God's hand is on you and God has worked a miracle to set you free. And the testimony of that inside your heart is the move and the witness of the Spirit of God. And so living the dream is where God wants you to live. Whether you're suffering or enjoy, you can live the dream. What do you mean? You can be out of captivity, you can be filled with the Spirit, and you can be worshiping the living God. That's living the dream. Now, if, if you're here today and you say, well, preacher, I'm still struggling, I'm still warring with captivity. There's the sin in your head right now that you still war with every day maybe or every week and it still lingers in your life I'm going to ask you this question if we can kind of get along somewhere I'd ask you this question when you come to God's house or do you have those times when you are worshipping God and you're aware of his presence he's filled the rivers of the spirit of God again and if so do you know what that is 
It's a testimony from God to you that He has removed you from captivity. He has set you free. He has filled you with His Spirit again. And He has let you live the dream. It is a God-sized testimony inside of your heart where the Spirit of God is saying, you are not captive but free. And you can know the move of the Spirit like the rivers of the south. And so if you are returning then to sin after that kind of worship, it's not because you're captive, it's because you want to go back to that sin. That's just the only truth of it. It's because you just want to go back. The lie of the devil says you're still captive. No, you're not. You just worshiped in the Spirit of God. You're not still captive, but free. Living the dream. And so I would encourage you to live the dream. Number two, don't waste your sorrows. These last two verses, verse 5 and 6, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheep with him. As I began to study this this week, I found a, a majority, I would say 95% of preachers and Commentaries who interpreted verse 5 and 6 compared it to witnessing and somebody getting saved. And I looked at the passage and I said, that's not what it's saying. It doesn't have anything to do with witnessing and getting saved. It has nothing to do with that. Now there are scriptures in the New Testament that compares the word of God to seed. It talks about God bringing the rain and God bringing the harvest. But this passage right here it's pretty easy to understand if you have in your mind the, the picture of them walking up that mountain to the temple of God, carrying their wagons full of, of, of the grain that God has prospered and blessed. It's not about evangelism. So I then begin to say, why is everybody interpreted, interpreting this to be about evangelism? And I, and I remember the song. You remember the song? Bring it in the sheaves. Bring it in the sheaves. We shall kind of rejoice in the grace. Remember that song? It's a hymn, I think. It was written in 1874. I think that song has called everybody, or a majority of people, to wrongfully interpret verse 5 and 6 in Psalm 126. Because it's not about witnessing you. It's about something different. It's about sorrows. This, these two verses are about something that happens when you have sorrow and then you have joy. And so I'm calling this point in your application, don't waste your sorrows. What are you doing with your sorrows? What are you doing with your tears? When you go through that season of suffering, are you wasting it? Or are you investing it? These tears that you're shedding through your eyes when you're brokenhearted and you're hurting and you're suffering, these tears are to be invested just like you would put seed in the ground hoping for a, a harvest from it. These tears are seeds that are to be invested. They're like seed. And when they are sown, they will produce a harvest of joy. Say it to you another way. You can grieve in a way that wastes your tears and wastes your sorrow. In other words, you can just pile up in a corner of your house somewhere and you can cry and weep and yell and scream and wallow in self-pity but you'll see no fruit from your sorrows it's kind of like a farmer who had a, a big bag of seed and he goes out there into his big big field 
And he takes that whole bag and pours it out in one spot, in one hole. What's he done? He's wasted it. He's just sit there, there and dumped all this seed in one place. I think some people suffer like this. And the sad thing about it is when you suffer like that, you may have to suffer again. Did you get that? When you suffer in a way that you do not reap a harvest from your sorrow, you may have to go through sorrow again to get what you were supposed to get. That's the sad thing about it. And so he's talking here about joy and sorrow and how you're going to experience both of these in your Christian life. And no matter how good God has been to you, you will also have seasons of sorrow. No matter how much you have joy in the Lord, there will be breaks in that joy where you will have sorrow and weeping in the Lord. No matter how much you laugh in the Lord, there are also going to be seasons when you weep in the Lord. And so the Bible is teaching us something here. It's teaching us that joy is produced by our sorrow and by our weeping. Psalms chapter 30 verse 5 says this. I have it for you to see there. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. So it's saying there that joy comes after morning, but it's joy comes in the morning after a night of sorrow, but it's also saying that joy is produced by the sorrow. And so you're weeping through the night, but that weeping produces something that happens in the morning, and that is joy. Sorrow is temporary, but joy is permanent. It's like saying that joy has the final say. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. I read this last week before our service. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So it's like this, this affliction, this suffering is working for us and it's producing in us more joy. So sowing seeds of tears if sown correctly, would actually make you happier later. Deeper joy later. The illustration of this is obvious. It's Jesus. Jesus is called in the Old Testament a man of sorrows. Many places through the Bible it talks about Jesus and it says he wept or he was weeping. He was a man who was God who wept often. And he is the ultimate example of this sowing seeds of tear and reaping joy in the morning because as he was a man of sorrows and he was bruised for our iniquities, wounded for our transgressions, he went to the cross, and in Hebrews it says, but for joy he endured the cross. It's as if he knew that by going through this, this being bruised and being wounded and going to the cross, he knew that the end result would be a deep abiding joy in you and me when we get saved by the blood of the cross. Does that make sense? So the deeper his sorrow, the greater our joy. He had great sorrow so you could have great joy in salvation. So here's what we're saying. We're asking you in this passage to sorrow rightly. Just give you three examples of what would not be right. Not in guilt. Guilt would say, is God punishing me? Did I get sick because God's mad at me? Did I get hurt because God's mad at me? Did I lose that money because God's mad at me? The answer to that is no. 
Jesus took your punishment on the cross. So you don't sorrow in guilt, nor do you sorrow in self-pity, saying, why God, don't you love me? Why would you let this happen to me? There's no self-pity where you have a vision of God and know how much God suffered for you. You see how much greater God's suffering is than your suffering. One of the ways that God carries you through suffering is allowing you to see that you don't suffer the worst. There are people around you who suffer more. There's always somebody who's suffering more than you are. I'm not trying to take away from your suffering. I'm not trying to belittle your suffering. Your suffering is your suffering, and it hurts, and it hurts deeply. But if while you're suffering, you'll keep walking. Remember that? Walking and weeping, walking and weeping, walking and weeping. If while you're suffering, you'll keep walking and weeping, you will notice other people around you who are walking and weeping more and maybe even hurting more, and maybe even suffering more, and then you remember Jesus who went to the cross for you, and He suffered more than even they are suffering, and that's when you learn the depths of your sorrow and the shedding of your tears to depend on God, and to trust God, and to believe in the, 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 the design of God, even though you don't like it. And in that trusting of the Lord, you grow deeper and deeper in your relationship with the Lord. So to have suffered and sorrowed and wept, and on the other side get out of it one day and have nothing to show for it, then you have wasted your sorrows. You have wasted your tears. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 4 says this, Who comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. In other words, in your sorrows and your tears, you are to be gaining the comfort of God. Why? Not only to carry you through this suffering, but so that you can comfort others with the comfort that you receive from God. But if you didn't find any comfort from God, you've got nothing to get. You've got no seeds to plant. If you're suffering wrongly, you will not lean into God, but rather you will run away from God and wallow in self-pity and anger and blame, and you will waste your suffering. And so, let's sow the seeds of our suffering while we're suffering. Plant the tears and learn what God is trying to teach us and grow us in our faith so that even as we come out on the other side of our suffering, we can help others with the same comfort He's given us. Number three. Bring in the sheaves. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16 and 17. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which He chooses. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which has given you. So in other words, when you come to God's house, feast three times a year, that's what we're looking at when these songs were sung. Passover, Feast of Weeks, and Feast of Booths. These would have been the three times they brought their tithes and their offerings, the overflow of the blessing of the Lord, Deuteronomy 16, 17, according to the way the Lord had blessed you. And so the Feast of Weeks is the spring harvest, the Feast of Booths is the fall harvest, and Passover would have been the celebration of deliverance of the children of Israel out of Egypt. And in each of these pilgrimages, there would have been a processional of a multitude of families bringing these blessings of God as tithes and offerings to the Lord. Can you see it? 
Can you see us all falling in together in this in this processional going to God's house, climbing up this steep grade? Our mules pulling our wagons, full loaded down with all that God's blessed us with from this harvest time, going to the house of God, getting to worship God again so that we can praise Him and worship Him with, with literally the blessing that He has given us. On our way up the mountain while we're pulling these wagons, the heathen are standing around watching us go by, hearing us sing these songs. And the heathen even begin to say, look what great things the Lord has done for them. And as the heathen begin to say that, we begin to say it out loudly as well. We begin to say, yes, look what great things the Lord has done for them. I think old Nate over there, he's been saying, Daddy, look at John, he's only got one wagon. we got two wagons. Does that mean we got twice the grain? And, and Brad would be like, yeah, Nate, that's what it means. God has blessed us. Look what God has given us. And so these things are, are our testimonies to the Lord and they're visibly seen. They're knowable by all. And so God's asking us in our testimony to be able to declare to the Lord with our worship and our praise, look, God, what great things you have done for me and for my family. And so when it says in verse 6, they're bringing in the sheaves with them. These sheaves would have been a bunch of that grain that they would bind together with string and, and they would literally bring it into the house of God and lift it up before the Lord. And, and then in the Old Testament, there's, I'm not getting into this today, but there was even a wave offering where they would wave that before the Lord in a praise to God, saying to God, everything I have came from you, I'm lifting this up to you to declare, surely the blessing of the Lord has been on my life. I started to call this, instead of bringing in the sheaves, I started to call this, hold my mule. <laughs> It'd be like, uh, Justin's coming along and, and Nolan says, Daddy, look at all of our blessings. And Justin says, Nolan, hold my mule for just a minute. Let me break out in a solo in this song and begin to declare all the blessing of the Lord on my family. And then just about as he finishes, old Brad over here says, Nate, you hold my mule. I got something to say too. And he begins to tell us, tell us about Lamian and the blessing of the Lord on their family. And we go from person to person, family to family, where men are asking their, their sons to hold the wagon while I break out and declare the blessing of the Lord that He has given on my family. I encourage you men today. As you begin to recognize you're going into a season of suffering, you will know it. You will know it. I remember when Cindy got cancer, we uh, we started writing things on the refrigerator to, to, to pray for her, and we looked one day and we all just started laughing. It was this list of all this stuff that was going wrong. I mean, it was just, uh, she she had cancer, we had wrecks, I, we, I lost count, I, I, I threw that list away, but we had wrecks, Abigail's car got hit twice. You know, we, we were having Appliances break down, and you just trust are going to break down. I mean, it's just one thing after another that was happening, and and so it was evident we're in a we are in a season of suffering. We are in a season of sorrow right now. It's happening to us. It's going on, and when you're in that season, it lest you become discouraged and waste your sorrow. What you have to be able to do as a man of God, a woman of God, is you have to be able to notice the 
little things that God is doing in your life that declare to you His love, His favor, His presence, and you know that God has not left you. In other words, what you have to do, man, is you have to be able to draw out the things that, are God, that God is doing, name them out loud before your family, maybe even write them down out loud before your family, and bind them up like you would bind up these sheaves so when the suffering is over, joy's coming in the morning, and you can wave that sheave before the Lord and say, look how good God has been to us, even though we, even though we went through that deep valley of suffering. Yeah, just, just a side point about all of that. In the beginning of this song, they're talking about being set free from captivity, being set free from, from being bound by something. And in the end of this song, they're singing about binding up the blessing of God to wave before the Lord and tell Him how great things He has done. So God's setting you free so you can wrap up the blessings of God and praise Him with them in His house when sorrow is over and joy comes in the morning. Because remember, joy wins in the end. Joy is the permanent one in the end. Joy is what's going to bind us together when we pass on from this world to the next and we go on to be in glory. And so bring in the sheaves. Testify about the good things of the war before your family and before other people. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for those who are here today who are in the season of suffering. They would be able to declare this morning pretty evidently that that's where they are. I pray, Lord, that you help them to, to bind together the truth of what all great things you're doing in their life, even in the midst of their sorrow. Help them to see it. Give them eyes to see. Help them to know it. Give them faith to see. Lord, fill them with your spirit again and renew their worship with you. That worship is a declaration of their freedom from captivity. Lord, help our children to see it. Help our wives to see it. Help these men to see it. Surely the Lord has done great things for us. Lord, help us to be able to declare the glory of God for all the mighty things you've done for us. You have worked miraculously in our lives. I begin to think about this this week, Lord, about our, our church here, the families here, all the things you've done. There's some of us, some more than me, some of us, our wives could have died this year. Some of us, our children have gone through deep, deep, hard things this year. Some of us, Lord, our marriages went through hard things this year. <coughs> but Lord, through all of this, you carry us. And you're able to set the captive free. You're able to, able to bring joy in the morning. You're able to deliver us through those sorrows into rejoicing. And we give you praise today. We give you a shout of praise today and declare how great and glorious you are. We glorify the name of Jesus today and say, and say with a shout, glory to God. You are worthy, Lord. And we give you praise. When we sing this song here in a minute, Lord, let us praise you from the depths of our heart and from the depths of our heart and all of our soul declare what great things the Lord has done because you are great, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Would you stand with us?